I'm really nervous because, um, one, I don't get to preach off of a, a manuscript very awesome, often, but, uh, but Zach has really um, done a lot to come to this point. And uh, this is a very special day uh, as we, as we um, set him apart for ministry. And so, uh, but most people say, well, what does an ordination mean? Well, the term ordain, which is uh, often used in Christian circles, really isn't found in the, the Greek New Testament. Uh, the word that you may have, if you grew up um, when the King James Version, you still read that uh, real often, that is translated as ordained in John fifteen sixteen, 16. Um, it's really better translated to a point or to set apart. What it says is, uh, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. That's what Jesus is talking to his apostles. And when he's talking about that in context, the word that he's using there really means to a point or to place. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, leaders were appointed. They were set apart in a special way. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were set apart as missionaries to the church in Antioch. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, uh, there were, were men that were set apart as deacons. And although the New Testament doesn't teach that ordination is an essential requirement for equipping leaders for the ministry, the ceremony of setting a person apart from ministry seems to fit the New Testament pattern. The practice of ordination seems uh, to be practical for the organized work of the church. Now, ordination is, symbolizes God's call to ministry, the candidate's commitment to himself, to ministry, and to God's will, and the church's approval of the candidate for ministry. And on the part of the church, this ceremony is an act of approval, not bestowal. Okay? It's, it's, an act, it's an acknowledgement that God has bestowed certain gifts and has called this individual to service. So ordination does not impart rights or qualifications that God himself has not already bestowed. So two important things we need to keep in mind in reference to ordination. The first is this, that the church should not be hasty in ordaining an individual. It should be certain that this person has the qualifications to serve this office, whether as a pastor or as a deacon or as any other leader. The candidate should first prove himself to be qualified in character and in the gifts for such ministry. The second thing we need to keep in mind is this, once an individual has been ordained, he should live an exemplary Christian life and show himself to be a maturing leader in the service of Christ. He is responsible primarily to Jesus Christ as Lord and secondarily to the church and functioning as a leader. And his behavior ought to reflect his sense of responsibility. At the end of today's service, we'll be setting uh, Zach apart for this noble calling. Before we do that, however, it is important that we all re-examine and understand this key position in Christ's church. By nature, this is going to be a pretty theologically rich sermon, so congratulations, you may pick a good day. <laughs> the main question as we're going through all this theology is I want you to ask yourself something, is what must you do as part of this church body to uphold God's plan for leadership and support Zach in his role? And Zach, I want you to listen intently to consider the weight of Christ's calling upon you that you are about to bear. Indeed, it is not me, nor this congregation, that will ultimately judge your success, but it will be God himself. As the scriptures warn us in James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So with that in mind, let's, let's begin by looking and understanding this role. Now the role of church leader is revealed really in its names. There are three different words used in the Greek language to describe this office of church leader. There are presbyteros, episcopus, and poiemen. 
Presbyteros is translated presbyter. You may have heard of a denomination that sounds awful similar to that. And really, uh, it literally means elder or old guy, right? (laughs) But the word does not connote anything necessarily about age. Remember that it was applied to Timothy when he was told not to let people look down on him because of his age. See, the term was actually used in secular Greek society to refer to those who managed public affairs in various cities. They were the elders of the city. The word emphasizes that the work of an elder must involve a level of spiritual maturity. The second word, episcopus, is translated overseer or bishop or today executive. The word refers more to the nature of the work. It's a work that involves managing the affairs of the church and directing the church where it's going. It's the idea of watching over. And the third word, poiemen, is translated pastor or, or we would say shepherd. The word describes the work, the way this work is supposed to be discharged. It's done like a shepherd caring for his flock. The analogy goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God refers to himself over and over again as our shepherd. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. The apostles called Jesus the chief shepherd. Yet Jesus turned around and told the church that it should be governed and cared for by these under-shepherds, pastors. Just as the shepherd protects the flock, feeds the flock, guides the flock, corrects the flock, so these elders, pastors, are to shepherd the church of God. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Therefore I exhort you, elders, presbyteros, among you, to shepherd, poiemen, the flock of God. Or in Acts 20, uh, starting in verse 17, it says, Paul called to him the elders, the presbyteros, to, of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopus, to shepherd, poiemen, the church of God, which he has purchased with his blood. So an elder is a pastor, is a bishop, is an overseer, is a presbyter, all the same. It's the same role. And uh, so then we would say, well, okay, so there's this leader role. Who's really then in charge of the church? Well, let me indulge with you a story that I heard I thought was pretty good. There was a man who called his local church, and uh, when he called the church in his town, he said, just who's in charge of this church? And uh, he said to the phone, the secretary, and then he said, I would like to speak with the, uh, the head hog at the trough. <laughs> and the secretary was taken aback, and she said to him, sir, if you're referring to our pastor, you should probably refer to him with a little more respect and not call him the head hog at the trough. And, and, she said, and he replied, he said, oh, I, I didn't mean any disrespect, ma'am. I've been a hog farmer my entire life. I've made quite a bit of money uh, doing that, and now I'm nearing the end of my life, and I'd like to give some of my money away to some good causes. So... I was just calling to, to talk to your pastor about maybe making a large donation to your church. And the secretary said, oh, well, in that case, uh, I think the, the big pig just walked in. <laughs> so who's the head hog at the church? Well, this church doesn't have one. I mean, of course there's Jesus. Jesus is, he is the chief, Right? He's the ultimate head of the church, but within the local structure of the church, however, God designed that it would be governed by a plurality of shepherds and elders to govern his church. During his church planting journeys, it was Paul's practice to appoint elders in every church. We read that in Acts 14. And after Paul started churches in Crete, he commissioned Titus to go to the island, quote to, so you can complete our work there and appoint elders, plural, in each town as I instructed you. From the beginning, there were multiple elders in the church. One elder alone did not oversee and shepherd a church. 
God in his wisdom knew that a plurality of pastors and elders decreases the lust for power and pride. It reduces the pressure that is usually too great for one person to bear. And it also assures a different perspectives and, and the wisdom of several counselors. Shared leadership amongst the plurality of elders is God's model for the church leadership. It lightens the load. It keeps the pastors accountable to each other and brings the most creative ideas and balanced perspectives. On April 9, 1993, after a 51-day standoff with federal law enforcement, 80 people, including 24 children, died when the Branch Davidian compound outside of Waco, Texas, caught fire when an FBI raid. The people who died there had become part of something as a religious cult. They followed a man there who, who uh, had ultimate authority with no accountability. And uh, even if uh, dominant leadership of a single gifted individual doesn't rise to the level of weirdness that we found there, it's still not healthy. Leaders need to be accountable to someone. And the best accountability is provided by a group of peers and partners in ministry. So what do these peers do? What do elders do? Well, uh, pastor and elder is not just an honorary title. It's not we just bring somebody up there and give them a title and then they just go on their merry way. Instead, it's a call to serve. Passive elders are not true elders. According to scriptures, pastors are called to do five, called to five main areas of service. So listen up, Zach. This is, this is your job description from God. <laughs> so it's important. First thing is to feed the church. First Timothy 3.2, it says that they must be able to teach. Couldn't say it more clearly than that. The second is to protect the church. Acts 20.28 20, tells them, Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock. Be on alert. First Thessalonians 5.12 tells the church members that the elders are to, quote, warn you against all that is wrong. And that warn you, that word in the Greek, really means to correct, to set right, to lay on the heart. The idea of church leaders correcting or disciplining members of the church is foreign to our culture of permissiveness today. But the fact is that all of us need good leaders who love us enough to correct us when we're wrong. The third thing that a pastor is to do is to care for his church. He is to model a life of unselfish sacrifice for those in his church. He must therefore know his people well so that he can identify any signs that they need help. And this is another reason why we need a plurality of elders. One person can only know so many people, can only meet so many needs. And yet, the word commands us to shepherd God's flock. The people need to know that they are are people here at this church, pastors who love them, who see their needs, that they can go to with their hurts and with their dilemmas, and they're going to find caring men to help them. James wrote this in James 5, 14. It says, Are there any among you that are sick? They should call for the elders of their church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. That's the kind of compassion that we are to exhibit. The fourth thing that a pastor is to do is direct the affairs of the church. It says in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. The fifth thing that we're to do is to model a godly example for the church. It says in 1 Peter 5, 3, it says, lead them by your good example. Now, you'll notice that in our church there are a plurality of elders and, and some, uh, like uh, Steve Johnson or Larry or Mike or Keith, they do this uh, on a volunteer basis. And there are others like myself and like Zach uh, and James to an extent who are called to this vocationally. 
This is not strange to, doctor, to Scripture. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.17, it says, Elders who do their work well should be paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, Do not keep an ox from eating as it treads the grain. In another place, it says, Those who work deserve their pay. Now, I wish that the apostle had chosen something more glamorous than an ox to describe us, <laughs> right? We get what we get. Uh, but from the beginning of the church, some pastors were set apart by the body to vocational full-time work. They were compensated by the local church so they could do this kind of work without distraction, so they could spend their time in God's word, studying it and in preaching and in teaching and counseling and in prayer. And now that we see the work of the pastor, I hope that you can appreciate then why it's so important that we choose our pastors wisely. Character always comes first in Scripture when we look at the qualifications. In fact, uh, do any of you remember General Norman Schwarzkopf? Yeah, that first Gulf War. Great leader. He said, leadership is a potent combination of strategy and character. But if you must be without one, be without strategy. I love that. Likewise, we find the most qualifications given in Scripture for an elder are all about character. Look what the Bible says about this in 1 Timothy 3. In fact, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to 1 Timothy 3. If not, listen intently. 1 Timothy 3.2 says this, uh, the first qualification that we have is that an elder must be a man of integrity. It says an elder must be a man whose life cannot be spoken against. And that other translator used the word respectable or above reproach. The word actually in Greek there means can't be held. And the word uh, is used for this. It's, it's to say that if a person was arrested, uh, that they couldn't be held and kept uh, being arrested because there was no evidence or to hold any charge against them. It's a, it's a word that talks about purity of, of life. I like to listen to Prairie Home Companions sometimes on the radio when I drive home from church. And one day, uh, Garrison Keeler was on there and he talked about this type of character and it, this struck with me. He said, uh, Cleric Bunsen said that Roman Windler could not be convicted of horse theft anywhere in Mist County, even if they found the horse in his bedroom. Those who serve as pastors need to have that type of reputation. They should be people who have a, a, a reputation not to be sinless, but for men who have a reputation to sin less. They must set a high example of godly conduct. 1 Timothy 3.7 says that people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not fall into the devil's trap and be disgraced. He must not give those who are not Christians reason to attack his moral reputation. Indeed, uh, a pastor must enjoy a good reputation in the community as both well-known and well-respected. And this just makes sense. I think we've all known some people who are very good at putting on a, a nice Sunday face. But their Monday through Saturday lives belay their real character. Character takes time and consistency to earn. And it's so crucial that a person who fulfills this role of pastor be a person of real integrity, that they must have earned a good reputation. And one specific area, it says in text, that we must demonstrate integrity is in, is in the lives of our family. A good husband must be, be an example in his marital faithfulness and in purity. In 1 Timothy 3.2, it says he must be faithful to his wife. Literally, Greek means a one-woman man. He must be a model of monogamy and of purity. 
And an elder also must be self-controlled. It says in verse 2 and 3, it says an elder must exhibit self-control, live wisely and have a good reputation. And then Paul goes on to give some descriptions of what that might look like. And he says that this person can't be a heavy drinker or given to violence or be a lover of money. See, self-control that he exhibits in these areas of life are going to carry into the rest of his ministry and his ability to care for the church. Next qualification is found in verse 6. It says an elder must be spiritually mature. It says that he must not be a new Christian. He must be someone who has been around Jesus a while and around the Bible a while and and around God's people for a while. He must be time-proven and had the opportunity to model good Christian character. The next qualification we find is in verse 2 and 3. It says that he must have a pastoral heart. It says there, it says, he must enjoy having guests in his home. He must be gentle and peace-loving. After all, his work is best described as the word pastor, He can't be a cowboy who just herds people and pushing them. He can't be a sheriff who flashes a badge and a gun and, you know, forces people just to obey the rules. He can't be a CEO who's too busy making decisions and has no time to spend with the people of his church. He is a shepherd who cares for his flock, who loves them. The next qualification we find an elder must be able to manage his family well. Verses 4 and 5, it says he must manage his own family well with children who respect and obey him. For a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? I love the logic on that. Because the work of a pastor is so similar to the responsibilities of both husband and fathers, this qualification is, is a wonderful litmus test to see if this person is right for the job. If a man is a lousy father, don't let him care for the church. If he is unfaithful to his wife, why would we expect he would be faithful to Christ's bride? After all, the church is a family. It is a family of God. Leading the church is so much more like leading a family than managing a business or governing a state. The church is not driven by laws or legalities or bottom lines or profit margins. It is driven by love for God and love for people. It's a family, so it requires leaders who have demonstrated that they can handle and lead a family well. Men who are selfish at home will be selfish in the church. Men who are power-hungry at home will be power-hungry in the church. Men who abuse their children at home will abuse the children of God at church. Men who devalue their wives at home will devalue women in the church. Men who do not serve their families through provision and protection and prayer will not serve their church families any better. If he abuses his authority and demands submission and rules his castle with an iron fist, why would anyone expect him to do anything less with his authority at the church? But if a man fulfills his duties to his family well, if he loves and honors and respects and provides for and protects and selfishly selflessly serves and gladly sacrifices himself for his wife and his kids, well, that kind of man just may be trustworthy enough to care for God's family. If his wife and his kids are able to easily submit to his leadership because he consistently chooses their best above his own with wisdom, well, that kind of man may just possibly be trusted with authority. Next we find is that an elder must be able to teach. Verse 2, we've said it before, he must be able to teach. A pastor feeds the flock. In the church, this is done through teaching, and it may be in the form of preaching, like I do, or teaching a class, or mentoring one-on-one, or leading small groups, or youth groups, or giving wise counsel, or even leading worship. The health of a church depends largely upon the quality of teaching. 
An elder must be able to teach and defend the faith with solid biblical conviction even in times when confrontation is necessary. Next, we find an elder must be motivated to serve unselfishly. In fact, this is the first qualification. Most people miss it. It's in verse 1. It says if someone wants to be an elder, he desires an honorable responsibility. A pastor must be motivated by a desire to serve God and people. Not to have power or simply to get things the way he wants them. Plato once wrote that access to power must be limited to men who are not in love with it. Isn't that true? Likewise, an elder's heart must be motivated by love for God and people, not power. Ultimately, the office of elder is not an honorary position for those who have been around the church a long time or are well-liked and or advanced in years or are good donors or have great personalities. It is a work of great responsibility with those whose hearts care deeply for God's people and are willing to sacrifice from their own lives to protect, feed, serve the family of God. 1 Peter chapter 5 tells elders to, quote, Care for the flock God entrusted to you. Watch over willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you're going to get out of it, but because you're eager to serve God. And don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your good example. So an important challenge for us this morning is to affirm wisely those men who are to be the leaders of this body, this family, this flock. Each year, as the names are put before you to either affirm or reaffirm men to lead as pastors of this church, it is crucial, imperative, that you prayerfully consider those whom the Holy Spirit is appointing to lead this church to where God wants it to be. 1 Timothy 5.22 tells us, never be in a hurry in appointing an elder. We have to select them carefully, prayerfully. But once we identify and affirm these leaders, like Zach, Scripture tells us that we must follow, pray for, and honor them. One of the most important things a healthy church can do is learn how to follow their leaders. In Hebrews 13, 17, uh, we're given these important instructions to the church. It says, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they know they are accountable to God. So give them reason to do this joyfully and without sorrow. That would, not be, that would certainly not be for your benefit. When those in the church willingly follow the leadership of godly pastors, the whole church is blessed. Uh, this is election season, so uh, there was a story that came to mind. I remember a story about this governor of Massachusetts on the campaign trail. And he is uh, running really hard for a second term. And one day, after a really busy schedule campaigning, he just didn't have time for lunch. So he shows up a little bit late to a church picnic, and uh, he ends up getting in the line. And as he moved down the line, the, government held out his, the governor uh, held out his plate to the, uh, the woman who was serving chicken. And, and she places a piece of chicken on his plate and then turns to the next person and goes down the line. He said, excuse me, ma'am, uh, can I have another piece of chicken? I'm very hungry. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm only giving one piece uh, per person right now. And so the governor just takes his plate and goes down the line. And then one of his aides, who's behind him, hears what happened, goes to the lady and says, do you know who that was? That's the governor. And, and she shot back, well, do you know who I am? I'm the lady that's in charge of the chicken. <laughs> you see, in every organization, somebody has to bear responsibility. God has visit, vested the leadership of his church to pastors, to elders. The whole idea that godly elders lead the church is God's idea. So the authority we're commanded to submit to them 
in uh, Hebrews 13, 17, is the authority that God himself has delegated. It is in the sense that they are appointed by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 20, 28, it says, Be sure that you feed and shepherd God's flock, his church purchased with his blood, over whom the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. Romans 12, 8 calls the role of a pastor or an elder as one of the spiritual gifts of the church. The Holy Spirit gifts some men to do this work in the church. The passage we looked at in Hebrews 13 tells us to obey the leading of the elders so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, because that's not going to be an advantage to you. When a church is not following leaders, instead of just everybody wanting to make their own decision, it's pandemonium. It's chaos. And it certainly is not fun. You turn your pastors into firefighters, right? Instead of them doing the work which they are called to do and keeping the church on track and, and, and their, in the areas of worship and discipleship and ministry and fellowship and evangelism, the pastors, the elders have to spend their time fighting fires of controversy and division. And how many churches have been destroyed because of that? See, unless the congregation can identify clear problems with the moral character and teaching, the church is just best served by following the, the leaders that they have appointed. And because of that, it's a scary thing to be appointed. Uh, your pastors need your constant prayers. They need your encouragement. They should be honored for their willingness to serve as they do. And the work in the office of a pastor and elder is an incredibly awesome responsibility before God and to his church. Acts twenty twenty eight reminds us that uh, they are caring for those whom Jesus purchased with his own blood. Hebrews thirteen seventeen reminds us that elders will one day have to give an account to God for their work as an elder. What we do matters. And then that day they will be judged by a higher standard than others in the church. So what I ask you this morning is to closely examine what the Bible says of this role and continue to wisely and prayerfully choose who those leaders ought to be. And once chosen, follow their leadership. Letting their work among you be a work of joy as we together aggressively pursue God's purposes for this church and this community. And since this congregation has already identified and affirmed Zach Vogel for the sacred calling, I'm going to ask that you would now join me on stage to receive your ordination. And you can just sit right there in that really comfy chair. Jesus Christ is Lord of his church, and that church is founded upon the conviction that he is the Son of God, saved by his blood, nourished on his word, upheld by the, his protection and our prayers. The church is his body commissioned to do his will. Christ did not set up his church and then abandon her. Rather, he sent his Holy Spirit to guide the apostles into all truth so that the body would have all it needs to do the work Christ intended and also be protected from those forces that would destroy her. Pastors, called elders and overseers also, were named in each congregation and given oversight in spiritual matters. Paul speaks of this responsibility in his charge to the elders from the church in Ephesus. He says in Acts 20, 28, And now beware. Be sure that you feed and shepherd God's flock, His church purchased with His blood, over whom the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. As we've talked about this morning, a pastor's work may include preaching and teaching, praying with the sick and those who have spiritual needs, caring for the flock and giving godly counsel, guarding the unity and the health of the flock, serving as a godly example, 
and directing the spiritual affairs of the church and giving direction to its future. We have come today to set apart Zach, who we have selected to serve this congregation as a pastor. Zach will join me, James Breeding, Steve Johnson, Mike O'Dell, Keith Pearson, and Larry Strong in this work of our church's pastoral ministry. Let us begin by asking God's blessing upon what we do, that His name will be honored and His will be done. Holy God, You gave the church varied gifts for ministry and called forth men and women to serve and fulfill them. Open to us the power of Your Holy Spirit as we gather to offer to You our thankful praise. Be present with us, we pray, as we ordain our brother Zach to Your service. All these things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Zach, I'm going to ask you to stand. And, brother in faith, do you believe that you are truly called by God to the church, to the life and the work of ministry in the name of Jesus Christ? I do. The Apostle Paul testified, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Will you endeavor to be diligent in your practice of the Christian life, reading the Bible, continuing steadfastly in prayer, and taking up your cross daily to follow Christ? I will, with the help of God. Scripture teaches that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Will you endeavor to faithfully fulfill your calling amongst the people committed to your care by preaching the word, and the apostolic faith, and by presiding at the celebrations of baptisms and the Lord's Supper. I will, with God's help. In Scripture, ministers are exhorted to tend to the flock of God committed to their care, not by constraint, but willingly, not selfish gain, but but eagerly, not by domineering over those uh, people in their charge, but by their good example. Will you endeavor to care for God's people, nourishing, teaching, encouraging them, giving them direction to the life of of this congregation, counseling the troubled, declaring God's forgiveness of sin, and proclaiming victory over death? I will, with God's help. The Spirit of God led Jesus to preach the good news to the poor, proclaiming the release of the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, setting at liberty the oppressed, and proclaiming the time of God's good favor. Will you endeavor to lead the people of God in their obedience to the global mission of the church, guiding their concern for justice and peace and freedom for all people and taking, responsible, uh, taking a responsible place in the governance of the church and in the service of this world? I will, with God's help. The Apostle Paul proclaims the church to be one body with many members. Will you endeavor to live and to work in unity with all Christians, witnessing the visible unity of the church, cooperating with colleagues in the ministry and in the congregational, regional, and general ecumenical church, and leading the church in fulfilling its ministry of reconciliation? I will, with God's help. Paul also wrote, For me to live is Christ. Will you endeavor to conduct yourself so that your life is shaped by Christ Jesus, who took the form of a servant for our sake? And will you, with the help of the Holy Spirit, continually rekindle the gift of God that is in you to make known to all people the gospel of the grace of God? I will, with God's help. Well, Zach, may God, who has given you the will to do these things, give you the grace to perform them. And Zach, know this, the God who has called you will not fail you.
Now, you have heard the promises of our brother. Now you as members of this community of Christian believers, seeking the guidance of divine wisdom, have you chosen this brother who now stands before you to be a pastor, an elder in the church, to help oversee the spiritual welfare of Christ's body? If so, please answer, we have. have. Do you wish him to be set apart to shepherd God's flock as pastors tended to the flock of God in the early church? If so, please answer, we do. Will you promise to encourage him and honor him in all things consistent with the word of God and zealously aid him in this discharge of his responsibilities? If so, please answer, we will. will. Wonderful. The laying on of hands with prayer is an attested in scripture. It's a sign of reconciliation, empowering, and sending forth. The church uses this prayerful act to be a visible sign of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to affirm the church's confirmation of this person's vocation and to entrust him with the power and the authority and the work of God in our midst. And because of that, now I'd like to have our pastors come. And Zach, I'll have you kneel over here, and we will pray over you. And after each of you have prayed, I will offer a prayer of ordination. Father, what a blessing it is today to uh, come together and lay our hands on our brother. And uh, Father, we thank you uh, not only for Zach and uh, certainly for Margo. Uh, Father, ministry is a team effort. Mm-hmm. So we thank you for her. And we thank you, Lord God, uh, for their marriage. We pray uh, protection, Father God, for Zach and for Margo. And the little one that's uh, growing inside of Margo today, Father. And Father, I want to also thank you for... Uh, Zach's mom and dad, who many, many years ago instilled in him uh, leadership and uh, what it means uh, to be a follower of Christ. And Father, also for the other uh, members of Zach's family. Uh, Father, we thank you for this young man's Mm -hmm. character, uh, for his heart, and for his courage uh, to follow Jesus with, uh, with ruthless trust. And Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you will continue to bless him and to give him the courage and the strength that is required for him to lead and be a pastor of this church in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. 
Eternal God, you are worthy of our thankful praise. In your love, you called your church to be a holy people and a royal priesthood. Through your Holy Spirit, you have given us a variety of gifts, making some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of Christ's body, the church. We pray that you will send your spirit upon Zach, whom we ordain to the ministry of your church. Confirm in him the grace and power to proclaim the gospel and to celebrate worship and to lead the church into its faith and life and mission and to be example to your people in love and patience and holiness of life. Grant that through this ministry your name will be glorified in the earth and your people strengthened. This we ask through Jesus Christ, who is with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Zach, rise to the ministry which God has given you and receive the acclamation of your people. Too. Wait, there's something else. <laughs> Zach, I'm going to present to you this certificate of ordination. May it be a sign of your pastoral authority, your colleagueal ties with all ministers, and your promise to uphold the sacred calling of this office of ministry. Remember that Jesus Christ said, Let the greatest amongst you be the least, and the leader the one who serves. Now, as your first very official act of service, this is yours now. Would you please uh, send us out this morning with a benediction? Well, be watchful and stand firm in your faith. Be courageous and be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and your minds to Jesus Christ. Go in God. Amen.